Rod, uh, jumping in here before the actual podcast begins to uh, give you an idea of what you're about to hear. This is going to be me and Mark Maddox sitting down to talk about uh, The Outer Limits, the TV series from the 60s, from like 1963 to about 1965. Um, Yes, uh, if you've never seen The Outer Limits, boy should you it's excellent all 49 episodes to one degree or another are worth watching of course some are better than others and that's something that we talk a little bit about during the course of the show you'll hear us announce at the beginning of the show that we might be also talking a little bit about uh, the original star trek tv series you'll also notice that we never do uh yeah we just stayed on track with the uh, the outer limits stuff uh for the entire time that we talked that evening um yeah so you can tell that we really, really like The Outer Limits. Uh, we concentrate on uh, a few episodes. Uh, the Zanti Misfits gets a lot of time from us. Uh, I think I bring up The Duplicate Man. There's a few other things that we talk about. But uh, yeah, The Outer Limits is a great show. If you are unaware of it, or if you've not spent any time perusing the various episodes, I'd like to encourage you to do so. If this episode of our podcast points you toward The Outer Limits as a possible viewing experience and you've never done it before, I would be really thrilled to hear what you think of the show once you start uh, dipping into some of the episodes. Because it's really cool. It's really great stuff. And the good news is that mere hours after Mark and I recorded this episode, something that we wish for quite desperately during the show, uh, turns out, uh, was announced. Uh, We heard just a few hours, literally like 12 hours after we recorded this show, that uh, the, the... they've heard us, they heard us, they heard us all, they heard us screaming about it, or at least moaning and complaining about it, like bitchy little fanboys. Uh, The Outer Limits, the original series of The Outer Limits, um, is going to be coming out on Blu-ray very soon, which is extremely exciting, because uh, I suspect that that means that not only will they get upgraded to high definition, it also means that they will um, have extras maybe a bunch of commentary tracks from people like uh, David Shaw, who wrote The Outer Limits Companion. Maybe they will even bring The Outer Limits Companion book back into print. That would be that would be awesome. That I can't believe that the, that that is out of print and that used copies fetch like $150. That's some ridiculous crap there. So, um, good news. Uh, the DVDs, uh, if you're just wanting the DVDs, will soon be really cheap as everybody who wants it on Blu-ray will start selling off all their old DVDs of The Outer Limits. Uh, and if you want it on Blu-ray, like myself, uh, soon we will have the opportunity. I think they're going to release them a season at a shot, which will kind of really be lopsided considering the first season had, I think, 32 episodes and the second season only had about 17. So that's that's going to be different for how they price things. That's going to be kind of bizarre, really. But anyway... The, the Outer Limits. So something that we're wanting them to do when we recorded the show, uh, they're doing. I'm not saying that we caused this to happen. Yeah, there's no way we caused it to happen. It's, too, it's just too many people who want it to happen. So anyway, this is me and Mark, the, the, the great artist Mark Maddox, talking about uh, The Outer Limits. Hope you enjoy it, and uh, we will talk to you again soon. is no limit to the extension of the curious mind. It reaches to the end of the imagination, then beyond into the mysteries of dreams, hoping always to convert even the dreams into reality for the greater well-being of all mankind.
All right, welcome to the Bloody Pit. We're doing another episode with Mark Maddox because I tricked him into doing it yet again. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Mark, for joining me. I'm trapped. Trapped. You are trapped. Uh, tonight we're going to talk a little bit about uh, probably primarily The Outer Limits, the original television series. Maybe a little Star Trek because we can't stop ourselves. Uh-huh. But uh, I am curious, uh, uh, kind of a, when did you first see The Outer Limits at all? In other words, were you seeing it in its original run or were you seeing it in uh, reruns after the fact? Um, one thing about doing this show is that with you, I know we had already kind of talked a little bit, yeah. stoked the fire about what we were going to talk about. And one of the things you said, and I completely agree with, is that Outer Limits is not a TV show. It's a it's a little mini-movie. Each episode, yeah. Each episode is a mini-movie. So here's what happened. I saw an episode of Outer Limits, came in after the credits had started rolling and everything, and thought that I was seeing a film. Oh, okay. So the first one I remember ever seeing is uh, the episode I remember seeing first is the one with uh, Adam West and them on the planet with the monster swimming through the sand. Invisible Enemy. Invisible Enemy, and I thought that I was watching a film. This yeah. was on Armed Forces Television. And I didn't know that we had our outer limits on. There must have been a, a, you know, they would put it on in the afternoon, and I didn't know it or whatever. I was at school. But I remember seeing it, and for a very long time, I said, I remember this film with these monsters swimming on the sand of this planet like water. And uh, and, and I guess, um, I don't remember when Frank Herbert's Dune was written, but... And little shades of that with those sandworms. Actually, yeah, Dune I think won the Hugo in '65, so that would be after. Wow, that's this. really close. Yeah, really yeah. close though. So a good chance that he wrote it, not having uh, this episode not having aired. Maybe I don't know. What did no, Outer- no, no. Outer Limits was uh, Outer Limits aired uh, originally from. Uh, oh no, you're right. You're right. You're right. 1963 to 1965. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. That's true. That is close. They're pretty close together. I'm trying to think of that. Was that a first or a second season episode? Uh, Invisible Enemy was a first season episode. Okay. So you know, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe yeah. there have been discussions about that kind of thing before. The ones in Outer Limits were more uh, dinosaurish, dragonish in a way, fish-like. Whereas, of course, the sandworms in Dune are very different looking and much larger. So for a very long time, I thought I had watched a movie. Um, It wasn't until I watched Outer Limits years later on some marathon late night or something that I said, oh my gosh, this was what I thought was a film. But then, this is, I think this is one of the main points you and I are intending on making on this show tonight, is that... um, is that we feel that this show is a series of miniature films. Yeah. I mean, it's an anthology like Twilight Zone or something like that. But there's something about the way these, these episodes are written, the way the characters are developed, and the way that it is shot that, um, it, 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 for lack of a better term, it's very warm and fuzzy. Like if Martin Landau's in an episode, it takes five minutes for you to go from what's he, who he is, he, what's he doing to... Okay, I'm with this guy. I'm following this guy. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think a little bit of that may be, and you know, that's one of the eternal debates amongst fans is, you know, which which do you prefer, the Outer Limits or the Twilight Zone? And I think they're kind of different animals in a lot of different ways. Their DNA is completely different, and also the simple fact that the Outer Limits was always conceived as an hour long program of the Twilight Zone as a half an hour program, and so Twilight Zone, well, let's put it this way, Outer Limits essentially had a different template that allowed them to explore 
their stories at a bit more at, at more length and therefore with a little bit more depth. Because with Twilight Zone, you've got twenty five minutes. Yeah. You know, and you, that means you've got to get in, get a, you know, get in and do your job, and then roll credits. Whereas with the Outer Limits, you've got a little bit of time to make it feel a little bit more like a movie. And so it doesn't surprise me at all that you saw, you know, the last however many thirty minutes of Invisible like Enemy, that, yeah. and thought you were watching the end of an actual film, because that's kind of the impression. I think they were going for. I think they were trying to be cinematic on a number of levels. I think they were trying to tell, you know, tell in a you know roughly fifty minute long slot a film a film sized story a lot of the time. Yeah, that's not to say there aren't episodes that feel stretched. That oh yeah, are a, little, a, a, li- a little padded. There's some of them, but overall. Um, and Invisible Enemy, I just I did recently rewatch that this just past week, and that's one that really feels well structured because that it starts with an initial trip to to Mars that fails miserably, and no one knows why, and then we have time pass and we have a, kind of a not a rescue mission but at least another exploratory mission to find out what went wrong, and that's where we spend the bulk of our time. So the story has time to set up that we know there's something deadly here. We don't know what it is. The best they can figure is, hey, who the hell knows? It could be a ghost, you know. Yeah. And it goes from there. And that's uh, that, that's something. It does. It, like I say, there's a lot of episodes of The Outer Limits that I think could be mistaken for a, a film if you caught it, you know, at just the right time. Yeah, quite a few of them. As a matter of fact, in if you really think about some of the films that uh, the the lower level science fiction films, some of them that you actually watch them like in present day, and, and when you're done, you go, yeah, that was pretty bad. Uh, maybe some of the Z grade um, uh, actual science fiction. Where there's a guy, there's a rocket, he's got a space suit. It looks suspiciously like an Air Force jet pilot suit. Yeah, and all kind of thing. And the, and the monster's terrible and all that kind of stuff. You look at Outer Limits and it's superior. The acting superior for over a lot of those. Um, there's there's a lot of mainstream monster movies that um, are, are low budget that have a, a bit of a fan base following. And I would say that there's probably a comparable Outer Limits episode to those films where Outer Limits is better. Mm. Um, I would say that the um, the intent of the of the craftsmen on the show. Anything from cinematographers to set designers to the musicians yeah. and the people that put together the um, the uh, monster costumes, um, they, to me, were like just that one step below, or maybe not even below in a way, depending upon the particular costume, uh, uh, just before John Chambers started the Planet of the Apes stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that there's some great monsters on that show that uh, if you're looking, flipping through a monster magazine or people are talking about it or there's a clip of it on television or whatever, you go, wow, um, that's not bad for a week, maybe seven days or something worth of work. Right. So um, in, the, in the case of that episode, years later, I saw it on Outer Limits. And I'm like, okay, cool. And, now I, and I was happy for two reasons. One, I was glad it was Outer Limits because I remember being impressed. And two... I was happy because I had, you know, when you when you, when you saw a movie when you were real little and it drives you insane for decades that you oh, didn't know what it yeah. was. With me, I'll give a case in point: Wild Wild Planet. I saw that film when I was like maybe five years old. I remember being freaked out by it, but it wasn't until just only about three or four years ago that I happened to finally hook what that film was. Outer Limits had a, had a little bit of that as well. 
The thing that's different about Outer Limits to Twilight Zone is that there's not an O. Henry twist, or if there is, it's very minimal yeah. in comparison to Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone, its intent was, at the end of every episode, some very successful, some okay, some not so successful, O. Henry type endings. You know, always a twist in the tail. You know? Yeah, and I think that, and I don't think Outer Limits did that. So I do, I do look at them as being different. They're both fantastical stories, but uh, where Outer Limits is most of the time clearly rooted in science science fiction, mm-hmm. Twilight Zone didn't have to have that limitation. It was more about what what if and how will people react to it. Outer Limits had that too, but Twilight Zone was allowed to go crazy with that concept. They weren't. There wasn't a border for them to have to stay within. And I think Outer Limits treated itself like science fiction films. So, Well, you mentioned a minute ago Martin Landau, and it just reminded me, uh, I recently rewatched uh, The Bolero Shield. Mm. And that film has three actors in it. Well, four, really. But there were three actors that you could name. I mean, if you're an old television fan, you know these, you know their faces. There's Neil Hamilton, who was Commissioner Gordon on the old Batman TV series. Right. You got Martin Landau, who you just know from an incredibly long career. And then there's Sally Kellerman. Right. Now, their performances in that in the Bolero Shield are phenomenal. We're yeah. talking, we're talking movie level, classic, brilliant acting yeah. with a script that gives each one of those characters an arc. Yeah. And it's really amazing to watch. Now, there's some technical technical slip-ups within the body of the show just because of budgetary constraints. Sure. The, the, you can see the shield. You know, once the shield is in place, you can see it shift a couple of times when they tap on it and things like that. So it's pretty obvious what it, you know, it's made out of plexiglass. Mm-hmm. But that being the one thing that I can hold up and say, yeah, 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 I'll give you that. That is a tight 50 minutes with a, a really well-constructed story, and the actors have got some real meat to dig into, yeah. and they do an excellent job. And that is something, returning to The Outer Limits repeatedly over the past 20-some-odd years, I'm always surprised and thrilled to rediscover is that The Outer Limits is just good drama most of the time, almost all of the time. Not all the scripts are as great as as, as some, but they tell really good stories. Yeah. The the characters are believable. You yeah. understand their motivations. You see why they're doing what they're doing. And you like or dislike the characters, not because they're archetypes, but because you've actually gotten to know them a little bit over the course of these 50 minutes. Wow. And that's an accomplishment within an anthology because... You've only got that 50 minutes. These characters are not going to be returning next week. You don't know these folks. And at its best, The Outer Limits was excellent at that. Yeah. And uh, it, show, it shows up again and again in um, uh, across all 49 episodes. Yeah, there are some episodes of The Outer Limits that I, I think are not very good. That I would still say that along. even the ones that aren't very good... Uh, on some level, in comparison to some of the schlocky science fiction movies that we love, you and me both, yeah, yeah, I would still look at those and go, if you really did a, 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 a side-by-side comparison, the Outer Limits episode might actually be better. Now, I'm not saying that, like, I, but I'm in, I'm in complete agreement with you. I watched a, uh, a lot of them the last few years, and I bought the uh, DVD box sets as soon as they were available. Yeah, but there were episodes that. Um, I remember not thinking too much of the episode Counterweight. Yeah. I, I didn't think that was a very good episode at all. Borderland. 
Yeah, Borderland, and there's a few of them, uh, especially near the end of the show, where yeah. they, they got the budget got slashed and everything. But having said that, I'm not going to sit here and spend my time talking about the, the 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 duds of this show when there are so many positives. I've had the weird thing is is that I am now um, friends with a large group of people that love science fiction, fantasy, and horror. You can call them nerds, or you can call them whatever you want to. But I remember um, when uh, Outer Limits first came out on videotape, and I'd have, you know, we'd we'd have like all night sessions with buddies watching TV shows and movies and all that kind of stuff. And I remember that it was me and like three or four other of my buddies at that time watching Outer Limits, and then you know a day or two later they'd start picking on me about how that show was incredibly slow, like just the show in general. Hmm. was slow, boring, and all that kind of stuff. And I said, did we watch the same thing? You know, and I, I found myself later defending it. was like, you know, um, I, I'd rather watch it than Star Wars. Well, they seem to, it seems like they're applying a, 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 a template to it. that uh, what, what they're looking for is an action story, and that's not what The Outer Limits ever was. But it was still not slow. I never felt The Outer Limits was yeah, slow. I always, exactly. felt, I always felt that there, that, that there was sometimes where, in maybe a few, in an episode here or there, where it's like, okay, we're not padding necessarily, but this is not going to be a rocket-fast-paced yeah. episode. Sometimes it's stretched out. The story is overly, I would say, stretched out to the point where it's almost unnecessarily long at points yeah. where you could, you can watch an episode and think, well, there's a scene here or there that could have been left out. It weren't particularly necessary, but going back to it, I'm impressed by how rare it is that I'm thinking that while watching individual episodes. Well, an episode that I thought was pretty good, especially when I first saw it was, uh, I know all these titles people, so just forgive me. I'm getting a little older, but I've watched <laughs> these episodes multiple times. The episode where the where the soldiers are on the planet being tortured by the the creatures. Oh, Martin, um, Martin Sheen with Martin Sheen in it, um, uh, and, and the guy from uh, Takagi from uh, Die Hard. Uh, but anyway, the uh, I, I showed that one to some friends of mine, and I thought, man, here comes the very beginning of the episode. They show you a little clip where Martin Sheen screaming, and this monster comes up. And hits him in the mouth with this weird ray that basically makes him incapable of talking. And, you know, Martin Sheen's great at crying anyway, like he did in Apocalypse Now. But here now, it's like the science fiction thing. And my friends were like, eh, it's kind of boring. Was that Controlled Experiment? It might have been. No, Controlled no. Experiment's the one about the time travel. The one with the bullet flying through the air in slow motion. With oh, like that's Grace right. Lee Whitney and Barry Morse and, and Carol O'Connor. Which that is- was my first episode, actually, that I, I saw that I actually knew that I was watching a TV show called Outer Limits, and which is funny because it is a good episode, but it isn't really that indicative of Outer Limits. Outer Limits, it it's didn't funny. have any it's, it's a funny episode, which is odd for the Outer Limits. The, yeah, but it was still good. I know a lot of people that really love it, and I'm not going to disagree with that, but it is different for usual uh, for regular Outer Limits, which usually brought on some kind of a creature, a monster, and the monsters on Outer Limits were really damn good. They were beautifully designed. They were beautifully executed. Yeah. Every once in a while, you have a little of this, that, or the other. But there was things in Outer Limits that were done that the movie theaters weren't doing. So, Nightmare. The episode we're talking about is Nightmare, the one where the soldiers are being tortured. It has a young Martin Sheen in it. Uh, it's a very good episode. You're it's right. a good episode. Um, and I think that, um, uh, you know, and, and I think maybe that's what we need to talk about in some ways. We can... 
we can talk about episodes that the overall uh, aspect of the show, and that's fine. But um, to me, what the show represented was a high quality. The the music, the uh, atmosphere that they would they would in, uh, project into the shows. The entire production design. There's there's no element. I mean, there are elements that sometimes aren't as strong as they could be in some in some episodes. But overall. It's a almost everything is the lowest grade it gets is like a B minus. Yeah, and it really gets the job done. I mean, they're really working their asses off. The other thing too that, and I miss this now. I miss this. I think there's an aspect missing with a lot of modern television and movies, and there's a lot of good stuff out there. So I'm not going to sit here and just you know wave an, wave my arm and go that's all crap. Yeah, because that's not true. That's not true. But for nuts and bolts action adventure science fiction horror whatever it is you're doing. That television show came out of a time when war shows and western shows and comedies pretty much were the dominant thing on television. Right. And they had you had these these kind of nuts and bolts writers who said, I'm I'm pretty good at telling a story. And I think that that bled over into not only classic Star Trek, but I think it also bled over into Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. And there there was like a nuts and bolts sort of a machine going. It was still like the old Hollywood machine was for for years where they could crank out lots of good product because they, they they it was all under one roof in a way and i think that you had guys that were working on outer limits while they would be pulling stories from science fiction writers and things like that and really good sources from these original stories yeah the guys that were putting them together were the same kind of guys that probably three years earlier were working on a western who knows which one they may they may have been working on a western simultaneously yeah they could have been and the thing is is but 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 you know and i was a person who at that time when i was a kid i didn't like westerns well i mean i like a, a lot more of them now but the thing is, it's interesting, and I, I had to back away from my dislike of Westerns and say, look, they, these people are not allowed to have all these cute little trappings or these or cute little um, tricks to uh, change the story up to where you've got a gimmick going on. Westerns were basically Westerns. I mean, it was like yeah. the bad guys coming into town, the cattle stampede has happened, uh, you know, the bandits are on the attack, coach. yeah, this, that, or the other. Um, uh, you know, you know the basic things. There's like maybe twenty or thirty kinds of stories with westerns, and uh, and but it was all character driven. There was a lot of character development done on these shows, yeah. and I think they, it was an easy step for them to move from that over into Outer Limits and Star Trek, having uh, characters that had that warm feeling that you could immediately pick up the ball and run with it. And whether it was an episode with David McCallum or Martin Landau or or Cliff Robertson or whatever. I mean, I remember watching uh, the original episode of the pilot episode with Cliff Robertson and the, um, and it was like almost instantaneously, he was like this character that, like, I want to see what this guy's going to do. I want to know what he's going to do. And it happened with all the people in, in many episodes of Outer Limits. You're like, yeah, this person, and within five minutes, you're already sort of following their story and you're hooked. And I don't mean hooked like in, they did some trick that just enamored you. It was like, yeah, this is interesting, and I and I and I believe in these people, and I'm going to follow them. So you're you're reminding me of uh, a late a late in the uh, a late in the run a second season episode called The Duplicate Man, which uh, once again is based on uh, a Clifford C. Mack st- a short story. And the uh, the amazing thing about it is what you're talking about there is that that feeling of of getting to know these characters. 
really effectively because of the writing. That's a good example of it because when we're introduced to the main character, he's a man who has uh, uh, committed a major crime by having uh, uh, a, an alien creature kept captive in, in his own um, on his own ha- in his own house for study. Even though he knows it's illegal and the monster is incredibly dangerous and that if it got loose on the planet, it could very well actually kill millions of people. Right. So when we're introduced to him, he's at a certain point in his life where he's, um, for two years, become more and more uh, bitter and and drawn in on himself because he's he, he knows what, what, what his life is worth if he's, if he's ever found out. And he's become someone who's alienated from his wife, and he's kind of a, a withdrawn, dislikable person. Right. But then the story has him create a, have him uh, illegally create a duplicate of himself, so that the duplicate can be sent out to murder, to kill the monster, and hopefully keep him from being found out by the authorities, and not you know essentially have to face the death penalty for having this creature around in the first place. Right. And when we're introduced to the duplicate person, it's the same actor, but this guy is likable. This is a guy who hasn't the knowledge and the weight of that responsibility that he put upon himself by doing this illegal thing for a a kind of uh, selfish gain uh, of knowledge and information to aggrandize himself. So this basically younger version of himself is a likable guy, a nice guy, one who still calls his wife by a pet name that makes her smile. And his wife immediately knows something is wrong, that this is not her husband. This is not the guy she's been married to, at least not for the past couple of years. And the actor pulls it off. Part of the arc of the story is the tension between the characters on screen about really which one of these two guys do you want to stick around? Because one of them has to be destroyed. The, the duplicate can't stick around. Or if the duplicate does stick around, then the original has to go. Yeah. And uh, so it's the focus isn't so much on this pretty interesting monster. The, the, the focus is on this interesting character study, and the monster story is just the tension put on the various characters as you learn what they're like under, under strain. Right. And it's... Um, it's fascinating. That's the kind of thing that it isn't done nearly enough. And it's not the kind of thing that I think it would be a good idea to do often at film length. Yeah. 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 Because it's a small story and it's essentially a character yeah. story, but that's what a 50 minute television episode is almost perfect for. Right. Since the first day that man stared up at the stars and saw other worlds, there has been no more haunting question than this. What will we find there? Will there be other creatures? And will they be like us? Or when that ancient dream comes true, will it turn into a nightmare? Will we find on some distant frozen planet an alien life of unimaginable horror? If I may have your attention, please. We have now come to that part of the tour which is most interesting for our student groups. You are about to enter the Cygnus IV division which contains no live animals. Instead, you will see recreated models of the different forms of life inhabiting our alien planets. All the animals depicted here were brought to us some 30 years ago in the early space exploratory days of the 1980s and 90s. They found our planet 
a hostile environment and could not survive. And now, welcome to the Signian world. I, I, I'm thinking about the episode uh, Soldier, which uh, later mm-hmm. was the inspiration to James Cameron, or at least one of them, to, uh, to make Terminator. It's a great episode. And you've got um, uh, Michael and Sarah... Fantastic. This man from the future who somehow gets whisked into the past, and there's these these situation where he might he could possibly alter the future, and things like that. It's, is it? It's Lloyd Nolan. They, you know, they just had the cops pick this 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 savage man, this fighting man from the future. They 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 pick him up and they give him over to uh, Lloyd Nolan, who basically takes him home to try to study him and try to figure out what he is. And the thing, I mean. There's science fiction action moments in the show and all that kind of stuff. But what I really remember about the show uh, uh, with Lloyd Nolan bringing the savage creature, I mean, basically, you know, the savage warrior from the future into his home is 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 the ticking time bomb type aspect of having this guy in the house, Lloyd Nolan dealing with it, trying to make... Him a better the uh, the guy a better person, and I remember things like you know, what was it the kid or something like that or the yeah. dog or something. No, no, he, no, he Nolan's, no, yeah, Nolan's kid is is something that's kind of having an effect on Ansara's soldier character. Yeah. Right, but there's a scene where it looks like he's going to strike the wife or the or the kid or something like that, and and Nolan blocks it. And I'm like, this is a weird sort of human drama yeah. that you can only get through science fiction. I mean. Uh, Perry Mason can't have this story, no. In a lot of ways, unless it's about somebody who's mentally off. But in this show, you've got this nice family that bring in this time bomb, this this savage who could potentially kill them in a moment's notice because that's what he's designed to do. It's good science fiction, but like once again, it still has that feeling of a western, or or just and I, and I use the word western just as that 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 nineteen sixties style writing. It's almost like the same people that worked on an episode of, of Andy Griffith, in some ways, worked on these. It had well, it's the also the template, too, because it would be you could imagine this story as um, not necessarily someone who's mentally deranged, but someone who's uh, uh, been held captive by uh, Indians for a long period of time and has now been dumped, you know, dump, you know for whatever reason, is dumped in town and is confused and can't speak the language and doesn't understand what's going on. And so you have this guy who's very altruistic and takes the guy into his home thinking that, you know, if we just sit him down and feed him a meal and, and let him, you know, see kids play and let him understand, hey, you know, we're, we're, let, you know, we're letting you be here. We're not on guard. We're not people yeah. who are putting up a wall or worried about you being dangerous. Yeah. We just want you to be comfortable. You could reset it in that; it would be a more difficult lift. You'd have to, yeah. you'd have to write around it. But it's a possible. To, it's a, it's a story you could possibly tell. But it's also, it's also an analogy. Of course, there's, there's, there, there's no post-apocalyptic landscapes or laser weapons. But hey, yeah, the uh, the analogy is very similar to anybody who has been lived a hard life, and uh, they would not get along with the person who lived a, 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 a softer, a, 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 well, softer life, but also a life where. 
money is not that an issue. Not that it's not an issue at all, but it's like, yeah, I'm going to eat every night and dad's yeah. got a job and mom's got a job. And, and, uh, there's, um, we, we live in a nice neighborhood and the worst thing we have to worry about is if the dog gets out the door or something like that. And you, and you look at this thing with real human beings taking on basically, I mean, you might as well wheel Michael and, Aaron, uh, and Sarah in, in a, in a, in a box that just says aliens fucked up monster man yes. thing and now all which is what he is you, you basically towed in killer monster from an, from the future into the Brady Bunch household although in this case the dad's smarter about <laughs> about about human psyche and it's these two guys kind of working with each other and then Michael and Sarah is slowly is starting to sort of so I don't know what you guys are talking about, but in some cases you can see him trying to say, I, I kind of like this. I sort of like yeah. this. And, I, and if I remember correctly, because it has been a while since I've seen the episode, he sort of gives his life up to yeah. the, to the, for the family because, you know. An- another soldier from the future is pops pops into our timeline, right. and uh, they're, they're, they uh, end up. Fighting each other, and yeah. and Zara's character ends up giving his life to keep the other to keep the, to keep the family safe. Yeah, and so the, and so it did work, and it's it's a it's a great moral drama. Yeah, you know, and 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 there's things you get away with in that show that with Perry Mason or or you know the intentional whatever it is, whatever Rap Patrol. The masterpiece known as Rap Patrol, <laughs> uh, where you sort of wow, this is this is pretty powerful stuff. Um, not not, they, a, not a Rap Patrol fan. They did it a lot. Um, I, I'm talking. Uh, no. Pardon me, pardon me. But um, no, I mean, with uh, I'm, I'm thinking about how many episodes of Outer Limits did this. I'm not talking about that plot. I'm talking about <coughs> how many great actors they had with their faces. And here's another thing too, similar to. I don't know, Doctor Who or whatever, classic Doctor Who, or even modern Doctor Who. One thing I loved about Outer Limits is when the people were talking, the camera was on their face. Yes. Not they weren't twenty yards away. It was beautiful big close ups, nice portrait shot, probably fifty, fifty five millimeter lens portrait shots of these people so that it was about the people. It wasn't about necessarily the special effects, although the show had that, or the monsters, and it had that too. But people were very important. and um, Well, stress was put on hire, hiring people who could convey these things effectively. And that was, that was, if not paramount, at least it was extremely important. Well, they had a lot of good actors in the show. They certainly uh, did. One of my all-time favorites who happened to be in the show. And there's a lot of people on Outer Limits, but I think Robert Culp really had a boost in his career in a lot of ways for the, the some of the episodes he did, which are considered real classics of the oh, series. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, kind of been borrowed, lifted, stolen, whatever you want to call it over the years. But, um, uh, you know... Um, well, I don't think there's a better episode than Demon with a Glass Hand. Yeah, that's probably... I mean, a lot of people point to that one and say it's the best one. I'm more of a, I need a monster monster scene... Uh, well, I understand, and I'm and I'm like and and outer limits, and this is one thing that they said too. It's like, yeah, we're going to have the drama, we're going to have the plot, we're going to have the interesting, interesting things that science fiction bring us all that kind of stuff, but we're also going to have monsters. And this isn't like, and God knows I love Irwin Allen in a lot of ways, but the monsters on on something like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or whatever were just they raised their arms and they attacked. 
whether it was the yeah. submarine or the men, the individual men and all that kind of stuff. With Outer Limits, there was a whole world built around this thing where when you find, when you saw a monster, whether it was the first couple of seconds of the film, the TV show, or, or 30 minutes in, there was a lot more to that show to support that the fact that you had some kind of weird alien creature or something like that. And usually... For the people that really didn't care that much about the plot or whatever, if the monster showed up, it's like, yeah, it's a pretty good-looking monster, too. Yeah. It was good-looking stuff. I mean, when I, re- I remember being a, a pretty young kid, and the kid next door to me, I didn't get to see much of Outer Limits. As I said, I, I saw that one on Armed Forces television. But the thing with um, uh, actually seeing the show, literally being able to sit down and see the show, I didn't get to really see it until about... 1971, they ran Outer Limits on Sunday mornings. Oh, okay. But the problem was, my sisters were also in the house. Me and my brother wanted to watch Outer Limits, and that was the same time in the morning when they put on Shirley Temple Theater. So there was always a fight back and forth. And so when Uh, Shirley Temple went to a commercial, we'd switch to the Outer Limits. If it was our weekend, you know, we'd watch the whole show. But, um, you know, I think about so many of these episodes with David McCallum and Robert Culp and Martin Landau and so many actors, Ralph Meeker, uh, oh, yeah, where, you're, where you're just like, uh, thank God these guys existed. Um, at least it shows you what television could do if the good guys, the right guys were allowed to sit down and be creative. Now, you look at an episode... Um, the episode where uh, Robert Culp is, is uh, slowly morphed into this alien-type creature yeah. to spread fear throughout the world about a, an impending invasion so the, that the, the Earth will the, tighten uh, up. The and, architect and of fear. The architects, architects of, of fear. And they all sort of, the whole the, what it is, it's a, it's, a, it's a dirty trick by some scientists, but it's got good intention to where everybody sees this creature land that's going to threaten the Earth, saying that there's invading forces on their way, and China and Russia and the United States and England and oh, and all these places go, holy crap, we got a bigger problem than each other, and they finally unite. That's, the whole, that's the whole idea. It's, that's a, the whole, it's, it's, it's an amazing story. And the thing is, is that it's such a great story that absolutely blatantly Alan Moore says, hey, oh, he stole in, it. Yeah. In, in League of Extraordinary, not League not of Extraordinary League, Gentlemen, the in, in The Watchmen, sorry, he, he says, I am ripping off this episode of the show because I think that it's a good plot. But, of course, yeah. his his fake creature in his show is the super giant, gloppy, tentacle-looking thing that they kind of built out of DNA. and then Yeah, that's this huge, you know, almost building-sized monster. Yeah. yeah, and I remember when I read uh, uh, the, the comic, uh, Watchmen, I was like, you're not... All right, so are you getting away... With um, ripping off the outer limits by saying you're ripping off the outer limits, does it make it any less irritating? I was irritated with that plot point in, hmm. in Watchmen. It's like you're 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 ripping it off, but you're saying, "Hey, remember the episode of Outer Limits that they did this? We're actually going to do it and make it more believable." And I'm kind of like, "Yeah, but you've just stolen the plot point and said I'm stealing the plot point." I don't. I, I don't mind it. I, I did not know. I did not know at the time because I had not seen the episode. Well, I did not know when I when I read the Watchmen that that's what it was. Other than the fact that Moore was upfront about the fact that I'm I am copying this, right? So, and, but, but that to me, I look at that and I kind of go, 
then write something else. Now I'm not, uh, you know, there's a lot of Watchmen fans out there. Probably their their underwear is tightening and crushing their their privates <coughs> about this. But are you, are you, you know, saying that are you saying that you're getting them horny? Is this what you're? I no, oh, I'm not okay. going down a Rodney Barnett path. I just I see, say I see. their panties are in a wad. Was what I was saying. Oh, 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 oh. But I'm sorry. It's like yes. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, do a story about a newspaper man who uh, starts off as a poor kid and and has no morals and all this kind of stuff, and all of a sudden gets very powerful and starts throwing his power around and is ultimately miserable in his life. I am stealing it from Citizen Kane, but I'm putting it in this film, so it still feel still feel original. No, it's you just you ripped it off from an Outer Limits episode, and I remember reading that and looking at it and going, well, um, I'm not. I, I didn't, it didn't. It didn't make me that happy. I still think that Watchmen's got a lot of things going for it, but I just, yeah. I kind of glaze over when I get to that part. Outer Limits did it. They did. Um, let's talk about some of the plots that really we felt mattered in terms of, in terms of not only um, uh, being just great episodes, but also ones that really were trying to make a, a human point. Go, uh, okay, well, I mean, uh, I, I know that I haven't rewatched it recently, but I know that there's a, a definite big human point being made with even something as monster geeky fun as the Zonti Misfits. Zonti Misfits is a great episode. It's a great episode. And I think that the point that I still take away from it, not having watched it in a couple of years, yeah. is the whole point of pushing your pushing a responsibility that you have off onto others. Yeah. Regard, regardless of you know, just just completely heedless of what that will do to the people that you're tasking with this unfortunate thing. Right. Uh, I mean, that's what we have. We have these these criminals from another world being you know being being arranged to be dumped in our you know in our southwestern desert. In other words, they think that we will kill these things. We'll get we'll get rid of these criminals for them by putting them here with these. Let's be honest. They probably think of us as savages. So put them here. Our hands are clean. And it's the, the idea of not taking responsibility for the things that you think are right or wrong and putting your morals in check and pretending that what you're doing is moral rather than immoral. Well, it's it, yeah, yeah. Let the humans do the dirty work. Right. But the thing is, I still look at the Zanty that sent them there and go, you know, you guys are bastards. Yeah, you are. Don't give me this. Oh, we sent them to you, and if you kill them, it's your problem. No, you're sending them to a place that would obviously be hostile, and you're hoping that the that the human beings will do what you already know they're going to do. So you're basically sentencing sentencing yeah. these anti. You're, you're you're killing them. You're just not. Uh, you know, you're loading the gun, but you're not pulling the trigger. Yeah, you know? but you're but you are. If your if your mathematical calculations are that there's a ninety five percent chance that the humans are going to stop the living crap out of these anti ant monsters, guess what? Then you yeah. you 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 didn't help it. You know, so. I, I, it's weird because we're talking about plots and um, and uh, uh, you know points that this show made, but at the same time, uh, you know, when it comes to Zanti Misfits, I have to talk about the I guess it's considered the technical aspects of the show. You had a very good cast in there, including Bruce Dern, who uh, basically this little miniature spaceship lands. Uh, 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 in the desert, but it lands up in these hills, and uh, uh, Bruce Dern is not who, and, uh, and the woman that he's with 
are not supposed to be in that part of the country where the United States has let uh, these alien know, let these aliens know who have communicated with them that they're going to drop their prisoners off. They uh, give them a spot where this craft can land, but what they are not understanding is that two human beings, two criminals, have actually moved into that terrain, uh, and there's a manhunt going on for them. So Bruce Stern, who is always excellent and is a villain, uh, I think sees he's just, the I think he's just always good, period. He's but, always yeah. good. Yeah, you're right. But very rarely does he play a good guy, except for Silent Running is the only one I can think of where he was ever. And a little bit in 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 the movie Coming Home, where I really was amazed by that performance. I think he was a, he was a really nice guy in uh, Corman's The Trip. He's the oh, guy. He's, I'm gonna have to watch he, that. He's the guy. He's the guy who's uh, uh, standing by and helping Peter Fonda while Peter Fonda goes on his LSD trip. Wa- I've never seen yeah. the film. I'll yeah. definitely watch yeah. it. But I like Bruce Stern a lot. But he is. Um, he sees the ship up on the hill and he climbs up to it. Well, unwittingly, uh, uh, misstep and he and he and he falls down the hill a bit and obviously injures his back or breaks it or something like that. And he can't move and all of a sudden you have this incredible Jim Danforth ant monster that's about a foot long with a smiling human face and not smiling in a pleasant way. <laughs> no. I mean, if I were to describe this in a radio show, it'd scare the living hell out of a lot of people where you've got an ant with evil intent with huge eyes that has a, 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 a nasty smile on its face who's coming down the hill after this guy who is immobile and then climbs up his arm and obviously bites him and kills him with some kind of venom or something. They're truly malicious-looking characters. They're and, hideous, yeah. And, and yes, here's the unusual duality of that episode. There are scenes that are amazingly beautiful in terms of their special effects, and then we had to get back to reality and said this is a weekly show. So there's scenes with several of these ants being pulled along on a string with their legs not moving, bent in weird positions like pipe cleaners, uh, but they had to hurry it up and get it done. So you've got some moments where you're like, that's one of the coolest special effects I've ever seen, ever. And then you've got other ones where it's just like they had to hurry it up and get it done. And you kind of go, ooh, that doesn't come across so good. But overall, the episode is fantastic. I I love it. I agree. I think it builds to a climax. I think if I was told as a little kid, hey, some ant monsters are going to attack a farmhouse and there's going to be army men with grenades and small pistols and machine guns and stuff fighting these guys and they're going to be crawling all over. I was like, oh my God, just get out everything out of the way. You know, mom, get out of my way. Dad, go sit in your chair. Dog, shut up. You know. Everyone, silence. I hate all of you. Let me turn this TV set on. I've got to watch this show. And I remember the first time I ever saw it. I think it was probably about 18 or 19 years old. They showed it late night on out of an Atlanta channel and I was blown away by it. Well, there's that. Outer Limits functions as a drama. The human characters on a lot of the episodes are well-written, and they put the work into the special effects. Yeah. The sets, the clothes, the costumes. I mean, the standard stuff that you expect from television, like the people look nice, they're groomed, there's a, uh, there's these Oh, the uh, costuming nice is... Clothes. The, the costuming is... T- typical top of the line, well produced '60s television. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it. it and, and I'm going to say this too: Outer Limits um, was superior with its week to week monsters in most cases to other shows later, like Star Trek. I, I don't think the Gorn looked as good as a lot of the episodes. I mean, that's one of the more famous Star yeah. Trek monsters. And while I like it to a degree, that stiff mouth. 
and those blank staring metallic eyes do not look nearly as good as a lot of the monsters in Outer Limits that had a little more flex and a little more believability to them. And we can sit here and we can run off a list of monsters. I mean, yeah. but, you know, I, I mean... I, I well, I mean, we, if you want to talk favorite episodes of Outer Limits, I mean, um, it, it, gets into, it gets into a weird area for me because... Uh, Every, every episode that I name leads me to another one. And so if I'm talking about the Zanti Misfits, I'm thinking about the monster primarily, and so I immediately go to Tourist Attraction, which we were talking yeah. about earlier. And uh, I, I think, having rewatched that one just this past week, I love that episode. It really is a little mini-movie. Yeah, Ralph Meeker's excellent in it. Henry Silva's excellent in it. I like the story. I like the complexity and the darkness of the uh, the relationship between Meeker's character and his his female secretary slash love interest, yeah, uh, I like the the excellent way in which we're given a background about Ralph Meeker's you know wealthy man hunting for a devilfish character. Um, we get uh, excellent excellent exposition from the female lead telling us you know that uh, the she used to be a journalist now he's her secretary. Um, and and, and and she says, I, ser- I serve at his pleasure, getting across in, in 1960s television terms that whether she's comfortable with it anymore or not, they're also lovers. Yeah. And uh, we get and the fact that she's uncomfortable with it adds a, a shading to the relationship and what that means to Meeker's character. Also, that the reason she's not a journalist anymore is the magazine she worked for published a story that he didn't like, so he bought the magazine and shut it down. The only thing he kept was her. Yeah. So you have this guy who's not necessarily very likable or laudable. He doesn't seem to be a, a nice guy. But by the end of the show, because there's a less good guy, you understand that He's not as bad as you might think because Henry Silva's dictator character is he's not a comic villain by any stretch but he's the real dark side of human nature. He's the real power out of control kind of guy. But to, yeah. to, I, I stepped away for, from the monsters there for a moment. It's got a great monster too. Yeah. And you want to talk about uh, you know the, the problem with the Gorn's eyes. Well, and with this monster the, the eyes blink. There's uh, yeah. some realist. There's some realistic underwater uh, underwater movement. It does appear that this, there's a guy who's like in the suit underwater, who somehow or another can breathe and move around. Yeah. Uh, and the underwater photography is very nice. Um, one thing I'll say about the monsters on Outer Limits, there was an evil intent a lot of times when they were supposed to be rotten. They, they the, the sculptors did a very very good job with the expression on the monster's face, and I'll give you three examples that when you look at them together, they they probably were in some ways done by the same people. So Zanti misfits with those staring eyes with little veins at the corners of the eyes. They have the same eyes as the monsters from Tourist Attraction and have oh, the same yeah. eyes as uh, Warren Oates from The Mutation. From The Mutant. The Mutant. Mutant. Sorry, The Mutant. Yeah, great episode. And there's, but, but there's that same evil stare look that they had. But it works. Yeah, it works in a very 1960s fashion. Well, it's 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 something that's almost primal. It's some, you can't see that image, especially on uh, on Warren Oates's character, without having just a kind of visceral, unstoppable, automatic reaction. There's something about that that kind of creeps us out. It, yeah. it puts us off. Well, and 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 um, and so the, the the monsters and tourist attraction who are sort of like a 
uh, you know, I don't want to say they're a larger, bulkier version of the creature from the Black Lagoon, but when you look at them, they're pretty damn cool looking. They look almost like those mudfish that climb up out of the ocean or out right. of the lakes and walk on the land. And uh, beautiful stuff. I remember the first time I saw them, I said, this is really cool. This is a monster movie. They um, had this ability of like a psychic weapon, a, a, a telepathic energy weapon that they used. I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, once again, back to the morality of that episode. Um, Henry Silva is a, uh, a nasty, self-centered dictator who is going to abuse the privilege of having these creatures in his country. And the creatures attack. They're like, you know, you're not going to do this to us. And they use their psychic energy to draw in an the others. To, uh, yeah, well, they, they draw the others too, but then they use it to destroy the dam and wipe out that city, include, which includes killing the villain. Ralph Meeker is an ass. Yeah, in this show, he's a jerk. Yeah. But it breaks him or changes him enough after he sees the destruction and all that kind of stuff. Where at the end, you see you see hope for him. Yes, and and, and the, the woman chooses to stay with him. He he, kind of magnanimously and <laughs> he gives her the option. He, he honestly gives her the option. Hey, I'm you know I've I've been I've been an asshole to you. Do you want to stay? And at the po- at that point, she has seen him take a turn. He's, she's seen him do something out of character for himself, and she elects to stay with him. Yeah, which is which is kind of oddly bittersweet, uplifting in a way, because all this all this shit had to happen, and these people had to die for this guy to learn this lesson. But at the same time, this lesson wouldn't have had to be learned if Meeker's character had been paid more attention to. Because once he realizes what's going on, he's advocating for doing the right thing. Yeah. He's like, hey, 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 this is a problem. Well, um, another episode, and I want to say it's called Corpus Earthling, but that's probably not correct, is one of the earliest ones I watched with Robert Culp and uh, uh, the vampire from the Night Stalker, Barry Atwater. Is, mm-hmm. that, is that the right, is that Corpus Earthling? Corpus Earthling. Um, parasitic aliens with a plan to take over the, the human race. Take refuge in a geologist's laboratory disguised right. as rocks. Yes, it's excellent. Right. And the thing is, is that now I will say this. You can talk about whatever age you are when you watched Outer Limits. And I know people who were incredibly horrified by the Zanti misfits. I was older, so all I was was amazed. But I could understand how somebody who was five years old and had never seen anything like that before could be traumatized. The episode Corpus Earthling has a scene where these two rocks are sitting on these shells that you know are actually living creatures, and Barry Atwater goes over to pick one up and sort of, you know, I don't know what he's doing, looking at it, experimenting with it or whatever, and the rock kind of liquefies in a way, engulfs his hand, and then using telepathic ability forces him to take this now glop-covered hand and stick it to his face. There's a little bit of sadism there of an unusual science fiction kind. It's not a knife to the face. It's not acid to the face or anything yeah. like that. But what it is is a creature that is sucking on him, sucking on his hand, and now wants to suck on his face. And so it literally forces his hand to his face and then starts to engulf his head. And that's pretty damn creepy stuff. Especially it is. with a good actor and the sound effects and the and the music and all that kind of stuff. And I remember that, you know, Robert Culp was in it. It was a, a very good episode. But there's some genuine terror there given your age and your place in the world 
whether you're uh, living in 1964, 65, or whatever when this is happening, and you've never seen anything like that, and whether or not it is a thing about being uh, out of uh, out of control and having something completely and totally telling you what you're going to do, maybe even almost a sort of a, I mean, might be a little bit strong of a word, but there's a little bit of a rape type aspect to it. Yeah. Where the where where now now I'm on your hand now take take my body and stick it up on your face and I'm going to morph into your head and then. They kind of take over and turn these uh, human beings into sort of ghostly, if I remember. They were sort of like zombie-esque, ghostly sort of figures that were were doing their will. Um, But that was one of the very earliest ones I ever saw. I saw that when I was pretty young. I was impressed. I wasn't scared, although I remember being a little weirded out by the scene. It was not in a bad way. It's like, that's kind of creepy. That's cool. I like it. But that's another one that every time I watch it really plays out more like a film than an episode of television. Yeah, absolutely. It's very, it's very cinematic. Uh, you've got uh, them in that isolated uh, place uh, out in the kind of in the middle of nowhere or on the outskirts of this little Mexican village. And you've got um, the wind blowing. And you have those shots of, the, of that little little bungalow they're in from the outside, and you have the that local the the local uh, medicine man who's like starts a, starts a little bon, you know starts a little campfire outside the house and is burning uh, burning sage and things like that because he knows something's wrong. There's just yeah. something wrong in the air, and it, there's all these things. It's like all you know these signs and portents that are kind of built around uh, that are built that are built around what um, could be played just as a very straight piece of television. But there are all these atmospheric bits and pieces that actually just push the, the, the push the story forward, but also add color and kind of a shading to what is going on around it. Yeah, there's all, it's, it's weird. Outer Limits had this ability, too, to almost, even though you know you were watching science fiction, there was almost a ghost story aspect to it. A ha- Sometimes. A haunted house or a haunted universe or whatever. And you knew you were watching science fiction. I mean, they never tried Even to... Even something is weird. Okay, well, remember the episode where uh, it takes place in the 1920s, and there's this box delivered to this woman on the day of what's going to be her her wedding. It's called Don't Open Till Doomsday. And I don't think it's one of the best episodes of the show ever. Uh, it is very interesting. In the 1920s, a pair of newlyweds receive a mysterious gift, a strange box with a small peephole. The groom, curious, stares into the into the peephole and it suddenly disappears. Forty years later, an eloping couple arrive at the now-decayed home and rent a room from the eccentric owner. The young bride subsequently disappears as well, as does her father, who comes in search of uh, his missing daughter. Uh, It's bizarre. You have this creature in a box that is taking these people into the box doing and it's it's the oddest freaking story you can conceive of and for a long time watching the episode it's it, the I, I, I remember watching the episode for the first time and thinking I bet I wasn't paying close enough attention and you go back and rewatch it and you realize I think I was paying close enough attention but I'm not positive anymore yeah and about the third time you watch that episode you realize I am paying close enough attention it's just really weird there's an image in in that episode that has its own sort of horrific intent. Instead of like the uh, like in the episode I just described, where the glop goes over the man's hand and forces his hand to the face to now glop over his head, 
In this episode, the guy looks in the box out of curiosity, sees the creature, but then he cannot pull the box away from his eye socket. Yeah. And he's yanking on this box and screaming. Now, there's almost, but because it's television with no blood and no gore and no... There's a there's a very fine line that they're walking here, but that could almost be of a of an R-rated nature. This thing's locked onto your head. It's yeah. it's penetrating your skull, or using some kind of power that's making that lens area on that box stick to your face no matter what. And you're screaming and you're trying to pull it off. There's almost a, once again back to the rape motif. There's a the the guy's head is being raped by a box. Well, to me, it's more along the lines of something that I, that's really a, a visceral terror for me which is like it, eye trauma anything affecting my eye just it it, it, it freaks me out in a, in a way that really kind of messes with my head and, yeah. and makes my reactions much more uh, much more violent than they might necessarily have to be and so that that whole thing where it you're right it does seem like God is something attached to his eye or to his face or what the hell is going yeah, it's, on it's 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 basically almost the form of a, a Venus flytrap sort of in a situation or something where or but it really is that this creature's evil intent is to lock onto your skull and take what it wants yeah and uh, it's not in the severity of injury to the eye um, uh, uh, Italian horror films where they no we're not talking about something being poked out it's poked like, out yeah. I, mean, I mean within that within close to that same year I saw the uh, the the horrors of the Black Museum, where the woman puts the binoculars up to her face unknowingly, yeah. and two uh, needles uh, eject from the uh, eye holes and go into her head. That scared the living, breathing hell out of me as a kid. I could have looked at the Outer Limits episode, thought it was creepy, but it still doesn't push you over into the gore violence thing. Yeah. But it's to say that it's close, maybe close, maybe not close. I don't know, but it, it's creepily effective. It certainly works on your imagination. It doesn't take a lot of imagination yeah. to let that image kind of insinuate itself into into what you think it might be doing. Yeah. And it's almost a little more... I mean, don't get me wrong. It's pretty freaking hideous in Horrors of the Black Museum when you've got needles being jabbed into, into this woman's eyes, into her brain, and killing her. I think that's what happens. I know the eyes go. I think she did die. I think they went far enough in past yeah. the eye sockets. They went into the brain and killed. But I don't even know if that would have killed that woman. But it's and that's like, and that's hideous enough. Yeah. But you know, for a show that you know is going to immediately attract kids, I mean, you, you know that we're really good at imagining stuff. You don't have to give us a whole lot to make us leap into yeah. you know d- different different areas of uh, either you know wonderful adventure or or creative death. <laughs> The the, the the violence may be cartoonish, but you know, to our minds, it's it's really really tough. Even when we're eight years old and think that being really really tough is is clutching your arm and falling down, you know. Yeah, yeah. Personally, for me, Outer Limits never crossed the line. I know people that felt that it did. For them oh no, I don't think so. What, when, when did when did people think that it might have crossed the line? Well, I'm saying that there were certain people that like saw the Zondi, certain like episodes the Zondi, like the Zondi Zondi misfits. I'm trying to think of what I heard from other people. Right. Uh, I'm sure there's people of a, of a like mind who are, you know, they got their day job and they come home and, you know, the breakfast or dinner is made and they, they, the kids are doing their homework and then they're going to watch, you know, uh, Death Valley Days 
and and all this other kind of stuff. And then they're gonna, you know, Joey's gonna read a comic book before he goes to bed, and then you're sitting here and you happen to flip around and well, the box sucking onto a guy's skull, or the mutant, or, the mutant with the giant eyeballs. The mutant with the giant eyeballs was famous, and that's the thing about this show is that there was imagery that was already famous or or, or stayed famous even after the show had been gone for three, four, five, seven, ten years, yeah. and people would talk about it. Remember the episode with the giant ants? Do you remember the episode with the guy with the giant eyes? Do you remember the episode with David McCallum where he makes himself go into the future, but his body morphs into what people would be like at that time? So he grew a sixth finger and had telepathic abilities that could be used as a weapon. I mean, it was just this case of this, of this uh, um, uh, you know, and people remembered that crap. I mean, I knew people that had seen it that didn't really even know what they had seen, and they were talking about. You remember this episode of the show where blah 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 happened? You go, that's an Outer Limits episode. I once had somebody describe an episode of what they thought had to be a TV show, but they weren't sure, and they were talking about that it's a um, it's a one dimensional creature that's trapped on Earth and is trying to get off. Yeah, it's a Outer Limits episode. Is that Behold Egg? Uh, Behold Egg. Yeah. And I had not seen it at that point. I thought, man, I don't know what you're describing, but that sounds insane. So when you finally see the episode, it's not a great episode of The Outer Limits, but what an audacious thing to try. Yeah. The idea of... I wonder if it was based on... Wasn't there the book called Flatland or whatever about living in... I, well, yeah, it, was, it wasn't based on Flatland, but it's a similar idea, the similar idea. Similar idea. Of, That's yeah. what I meant. Somebody yeah, read yeah. that. I, I saw the episode, um, again, I think about three, two years ago, and I still don't dislike it. Behold Eck? Yeah, Behold Eck. I, oh, I don't dislike I, it. I still kind of like it. Uh, the reason I like it is because of the main character, who's this incredibly positive a very scientifically curious fellow who yeah. is experiencing this these odd occurrences, and he, he's never he's never uh, he's never less than really positively engaged with the problem he has at hand. If I remember correctly, too, the episode sort of a, got a little bit of light comedy in it. It's a not li- just a little. To, yeah. There's enough there to to call it not necessarily a comedy, but quirky. It, yeah, definitely quirky. That's a good that's a good call. Yeah, yeah. Since the first living thing gazed upward through the darkness, man has seldom been content merely to be born, to endure, and to die. With a curious fervor, he has struggled to unlock the mysteries of creation and of the world in which he lives. Sometimes he has won, sometimes he has lost, and sometimes in the tumbling torrents of space and time, He has brief glimpses of a world he never even dreams. An episode that I keep going back to again and again and again is It Crawled Out of the Woodwork. Uh, Do you remember which one that is? Yeah, it's the one with the dust in the the baseboard or something like that, and it gets pulled out and... Yeah, it's it's the it, there it's a physics research center, and the, the these two brothers who um, who work on kind of the same kind of stuff. And what I remember about it is that I'm always fascinated by it. I always like the journey the episode takes you on, and that the monster in it really is just this odd special effect, kind of like Behold Egg, where you don't really ha- there's not a, a guy in a suit and there's not a a stop motion creature it's more along the lines of a, a lighting special effect that's done um, to me to me when I see that special effect I go I still think one word 
labor. It looked to me like there was a lot of labor put in this special. Oh yeah, thing. definitely. It's a cloud sort of a thing with um, with lights with inside of it and all that kind of stuff. And instead of just being like something on a science fiction show from that time period where there's a little bit of mist and they got a flood lamp behind it, this thing is actually sort of a weird kind of the clouds in one position. Now we're going to uh, almost animate it in a way where yeah. all of a sudden the tendrils of the cloud are in another position and another position. You're hearing this roaring noise, almost like some kind of weird science fiction lion sort of thing. And it's coming at you. And I thought, you know what, you can sit there and say that they, they managed to knock out a, a special effect that probably didn't take them that long, but that looked like it took a long time. Yeah. In comparison to special effects that were on shows at that time, I think that what I saw is days of work. Mm-hmm. But what I love is that it shows that, although the, you know, the, the, the phrase used for the show is uh, the monsters were called the ba- you know called bears bears that was just a nickname to yeah it was just a nick it was just a nickname yeah. that, that, to, to bandy about you know to, to talk about what the focus of whatever the story may or may not be but the the idea that in some cases these these monsters these bears were intangible things things that the the actors are going to have to be imagining when they're on the set yeah this is not something that they're going to be able to you know touch feel and you know there's nothing to play off of right and you still get these like I say it speaks to the caliber and uh, ability of the performers we're talking about here that they're able to do some amazing things here in in, like I say in an episode like this one where there's just nothing for them to react to we cannot we can see it because we're seeing you know the post process shot being being shown sure. to us but i th- i just with think music. It, with music yeah, yeah exactly with all the things that are going to add to the experience Drama. Of, yeah. uh, so which episodes do you what do you consider your favorites out of this out of the show i mean the, the, they're the obvious ones that most people name which would be you know soldier and uh demon with a glass hand and the zanti misfits but i mean i always i find and we talked about it early on. I find that one of my favorites really is The Invisible Enemy because it is this little mini science fiction movie of, you know, um, explorers going to Mars. Uh, without an actual list of episodes right in front of me, Zanti Misfits is, if we were at a point where all episodes had to be bought individually and you're only allowed to buy one episode of your show, or if you did, you had to buy it separately. As Anti Misfits might be the one I would buy first, probably for multiple levels. The 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 cheesy sort of drama of the arm, army men versus the ants, but in right. a weird variation on them. Um, there's that aspect to it, plus the special effects, the creature design. That one, uh, the tourist attractions, another one. That's another one I play a whole bunch. That's a great one. Yeah. I mean, I play it, but I've heard a lot of people don't like it. I mean, I know a lot of people say it's kind of a standard episode, not much. But I look at it and go, I, I like that episode. I like it a lot. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I mean, like, love, whatever you want to call it. But uh, given the fact that we're both agreeing that Outer Limits is probably in the top two or three, maybe five at the most best fantastical, and I don't even know if that's a real word, but I'm using it, fantastical shows ever made. I think that um, you'd, you'd have to say that you love the Zanty Misfits. You love Tourist Attraction. And there's a whole bunch of other episodes that I love. 
Um, and for some reason, because of this time of the night, I can't remember a, a damned one of them. Well, uh, I'll throw one out there, and it's another. It, it's another that just shows our our love for Martin Landau, and that's the man who was never born. Yeah, which I think is a brilliant piece of drama, and also just a really, really good piece of science fiction. And it's funny too. I I didn't. I haven't seen that. I remember I saw it years ago, and I own it, and I watched it recently. Maybe well, not recently. Maybe in the last five years. I I out of the Martin Landau episodes, I lean more towards the Bellaro Shield. I understand. Uh, I mean, it's a good one. It's very good as it's, well. It's a good episode. Um, boy, I tell you what. I mean, it's it's ridiculous trying to uh, sit here and all of a sudden you, you're allowed to talk about one of your favorite shows and you're, you've got brain freeze. Uh, a lot of episodes. I I really think a lot of. Um, I remember even seeing because I had I was not allowed to watch much Outer Limits, not my, my parents or anything, but it just wasn't on television where I lived. I went to visit my brother one time and on a pair of rabbit ears with the picture going in and out. I saw one that by standards of the reg- of the rest of the episodes isn't that good, but I still have a fondness for it. Is the crank uh, the brain of Colonel Barnum? Which was like, if I'm not mistaken, was it the last episode? Or no, one? no, it's in the last five or six, but it's I, not the last. I thought it was the last two or three. The, the, no, the probe was the very last one. Probe was and, the very last one. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's like in the last. It's in the it's last, the last five, few. Yeah. But I just remember yeah. it had Grant Williams in it, who I'm a, a huge fan of because of Monolith Monsters and Incredible Shrinking Man. I think yeah. that man should have had a bigger career. Uh, he almost was like in his own kind of way a, a Montgomery Clift uh, kind of a type or, or something. Uh, and he and he's very good in that episode. You're right. Yeah. Right. Uh, one thing I will say uh, in this day and age of of the way uh, our our country's going and the way the world seems to be going lately, Hundred Days of the Dragon is pretty apropos. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Uh, Architects of Fear is one that a lot of people really rank as as if not the best episode in the top five. It's in my top five. I think Architects of Fear is yeah, phenomenal, there, there, phenomenal. For some reason, it doesn't do it for me as much as other. I always like Man with the Power. Six Finger is a really good David McCallum episode. Yep. Control. Now, Controlled Experiment's an unusual one, and that was the first one that I ever it's saw. The, it's the when comedic I was, one. When I was being pointed to by my... Um, by my cousin who watched Outer Limits all the time and we were visiting their house and she said, you know, go ahead and, 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 and watch this. You'll like it. And it was, I didn't know that it was a show with a lot of monsters on it in episodes, but the first one I ever saw was Controlled Experiment, which was a good episode. But uh, given the fact that it was a, a little different with the fact that you, you, you did not have any monsters in them. Well, from what I'm told, Controlled Experiment was a kind of a, a, a pilot for an, un, an, un, an unmade series, uh, says actor Barry Morse, who starred in Controlled Experiment, states that this episode was all, was made as a pilot for an unrealized science fiction comedy series, which That's is a reason. Here. Yeah, I know, which is really odd when you think about it. Yeah. I do like The Mutant. I think a lot of people don't like it. I think they look at it, that makeup as being pretty famous, but they're not that crazy uh, uh, about the episode in terms of plot and stuff. I like it. I like War Notes in it. It's very unusual to watch War Notes through an entire show, movie, TV show, whatever you want to call it, and to have his his features uh, hidden. Behind those, big, behind those goggles, yeah. By those giant eyeball things that he, when he takes the goggles off and he's got those those mutant eyes, and like you said, he's got the goggles. I mean, we're used to seeing War Notes in his roles. Uh, and Warren Oates is such an incredibly good actor. It is weird. I mean, he, well, what's great is that 
Oates is such a good actor. He's able to convey a lot of things, even you know, with most of his face hidden for the entire episode. But uh, that's that's got, that's a heavy lift for an actor, man. That's a tough call. I mean, you know, uh, you got to be you got to be brave to take a shot at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember enjoying the chameleon quite a bit. I thought that that was a yes, good, yes, a good episode with. Uh, um, is it Robert Duvall? Robert Duvall. Yeah. yeah. This one I like uh, quite a bit, but I don't like it as much as I used to. With the William Shatner one, Cold Hands, Warm Heart. It's good. It's not great. It's good. It's not great. And I think that there's a lot of dragging in it. I think it has yeah. one of the more unusual monsters that's like a rod puppet or something mm-hmm. that's floating above Venus. But I, I did like it. I like the wrap-up of the story, but it feels a little too long. Yeah. Uh, one that's, and we had talked about this briefly, uh, what a lot of people consider uh, to be the best episode of Outer Limits, uh, Demon with a Glass Hand. From a critical standpoint, it seems like it gets the most accolades. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a great episode. There's really no two ways about well, it. Just you know, you don't have a monster in it, but you got Robert Culp. Yeah, maybe the, maybe the the glass hand is the monster. Who the hell knows? Or maybe it's those wacky ass wacky ass aliens he keeps having to kill. Well, it was neat. I mean, the guy takes he's running around being chased by people that are trying to kill him, and then he stops and takes his glove off of his hand, and there's this crystal crystal hand that he talks. It's basically a computer. Yeah. And uh, it had a neat that was science fiction. That's science fiction right there. Hell yeah, that was science fiction. Uh, one that um, is based actually on some uh, st- stories that are quite a bit older than the show itself is one that that uh, they not only going to get made, it got remade when they did the new Outer Limits was I Robot, and both episodes yes. had Leonard Nimoy in it. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, it was it was good. It was a good episode. It actually had a little bit of a kind of a teary ending where. You know, did this robot kill his master? We probably figure he didn't. It was an accident. But, you know, they put the robot on trial, and the last thing it does is it's being taken to be dismantled. It saves a little girl's life who's going to be run over by a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so Outer Limits knew how to pull on your heartstrings a little bit, too. The two-part episode, The Inheritors, that's yes. a really, really, really good episode. Now, that, one's, that one, you can honestly say that's actual movie length. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then the last, and then the last three are uh, uh, Reign of Colonel Barnum, the Premonition, and the Probe. Now, why don't we talk a little bit about? And, and this will probably be kind of short, but why don't we talk about uh, episodes that really kind of like don't do Outer Limits justice? Children, Children of Spider County. Yeah, is not very good. Yeah, I I remember liking the Probe more when I was younger. I didn't like it as much. It's extremely low. It's, the budget's slashed. Yeah, you can yeah. tell. It's not very good. The probe is not very good. Yeah, uh, the premonition I thought was very boring. Uh, yeah, the yeah. one with the plane and the I can't remember. The guy realizes his daughter's going to get killed or run over by a car, but it's a it's a time travel episode. Um, all in all, I think we have a, a really great TV show that deserves its accolades. Yeah, of course. There's a lot of people that like it. Um, I think that. Uh, I think 50 years from now they'll still be talking about it. I think in some ways it's going to have a shift because it's going to be like, yeah, all this stuff was made by hand. I mean, it's all sculpted rubber and, and, and glue and, and uh, you know, prop spaceships. and um, Well, and, you know, rod puppets and, and, and uh, stop-motion photography. and There was stop-motion photography in it. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing stuff. Um, 
String, strings and balsa wood. Yeah, and I don't know whether other shows will will take a hit because they now use computers to do their stuff. I'm not going to be one of those people that says because it's computers, it's not real television. Yeah, that's it's, bullshit. It's, yeah. it's another tool to use. But I think Outer Limits will always be lauded or hailed and lauded as a, as a negative. Is positive? No, lauded is lauded positive. is positive. Uh, and, uh, about saying, look at this handmade show with these great actors that have now gone to the beyond, but we still love them and. And they made up their mark on us. Um, so, you know, and I gotta, I gotta say, I can hardly wait for Iron Limits to come out on some Blue right now. I, I haven't heard anything yes. about it. I haven't either. But no. that's easily one of the shows, one of the early shows of, of television that needs to have a Blu-ray treatment. I mean, it's beautiful looking. The cinematography is wonderful. There's a lot of attention paid to lighting in. Almost every episode of The Outer Limits. Right. It's amazing. The, the cinematographers, Conrad Hall, who went on to win, I don't know how many Oscars, was one of the one of the, uh, the cinematographers on the show, did a lot of the episodes. And, uh, for instance, in the Bolero Shield, there's a moment in that episode when Neil Hamilton is having a conversation with Sally Kellerman. He's on the porch. She's standing in uh, the doorway to the house. And the way the light is across uh, Neil Hamilton's face... Uh, his entire face, except his eyes, is are in shadow. Yeah. And they're having this argument, and that slash of light across his eyes just makes his anger more evident. Yeah. And it's just a it's a brilliant choice in lighting, and it's compl- I mean, you know how hellishly hard it had to be to block that scene to yeah. light it that way, but they did it anyway. Well, it's something about it's something you and I have discussed as well, and we'll do, do this in greater depth later. Is the fact that the original Star Trek, especially the first half of the first year, yeah. had more work put into it on its lighting. I mean, right. they had this dwarfish sort of a look with beautiful colors and all that stuff, and then the show became very Brady bunched eyes, like which is the gag in the Brady Bunch movie where the guy looks inside their house and, I mean, the whole house is lit up from every direction, including under the damn coffee table. And I think that's to hurry it up and get it on. We know the lights are going to illuminate no matter what you do. Now run in there and do your scenes. Well, the original uh, first episodes of Star Trek, maybe the first 10 or 15, It's the first 10 10 or 11, I think. Yeah, Yeah. and and you have, once again, you've got a television show that looks like a film. It doesn't have the biggest budget in the world. But because of that, it does look like a movie, and Outer Limits had that for a very long time yeah. in its series. So there's a whole bunch of stuff to recommend this show. Um, I think that if you're looking for Michael Bay-level entertainment, this is not your show. No. But then you're not our kind of people anyway. Uh, I mean, to me, there's a lot more content in, in an episode of Outer Limits with its limited budget and stuff like that. I wish that they made a show like this right now, and they don't. No, they don't. Yeah. Um, and I've always thought, even when I was a little kid, even up to this day, I thought, this is a quality product. Um, uh, it's 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 a phenomenal television show. But, but once again, with businessmen and stuff like that screwing things over, they start yeah. slashing the budget, and they're trying to kill shows. And we've seen it happen a lot of times with things that should still should have, should have gotten a good three years or five years or something to run, or who knows how long. Right, but but um, you know it's it's a, it's a question of it's always a question of numbers. It's what adds up in what column and and whether it's you know red or green or blue or black. And it's still, it's, it's always uh, someone else's decision. Rarely does a show succeed so well that the creators can take their can take their time and make their own decisions on when they need to wrap things up for whatever creative and and artistic reasons that 
would be best to make that decision on. Right. So right. We're, we're lucky to have the 49 episodes of The Outer Limits that exist, even though there are some duds in there. I'd rather have those duds if that means that I get to have all of the great stuff that's involved. So, Oddly enough, I think of those television episodes that are duds of Outer Limits had actually been at the drive-in. I think they would have been, we, you would be reviewing them favorably. It, well, it kind of depends. I mean, how long would they? I mean, you know, how what, what would they have added to them to stretch them out to feature length? You know. Well, I'm not talking about that. Let's just pretend that 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 there isn't that issue. That you happen to be watching a movie that's 52 minutes or 54 minutes long or whatever an outer limits episode okay. was, and that uh, you're gonna you're you're watching it and you go, "Oh, that was a pretty cool monster." And yeah, they didn't have much of a budget, and, and there were certain uh, uh, things that they took to do that. But I mean, you look at some of the the, the worst of Roger Corman. Yeah, where they've got absolutely no money or whatever, and Outer Limits beats the pants off of them. In some cases, I would agree with you. In some cases. I'm I'm, I'm not going to compare it, sit here and compare, let's say, Outer Limits to the fall of the House of Usher or something. I'm talking about... No, we know what we're talking about. We're we're trying to compare monster movie to monster movie. Right, and I'm trying to think of some of the the really lower budget... I mean, if you take the worst episode of Outer Limits and put it up against the Brain Eaters, uh, Outer Limits wins. Probably. Probably. Yeah, probably. Well, when you when you when your when your creatures are little fur balls with little antennas, uh, you know, uh, pipe cleaners for Stuck ears out coming them, yeah. out of them, slowly being pulled by a string. Yeah, I'd probably say that there's a good chance that the worst episode of Outer Limits would 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 uh, would would beat it out in yeah. terms of it's better. And I'm not sitting here trying to, you know. Well, no, but uh, even at its worst, there's some decent ideas. Even even the bad episodes of Outer Limits at least had some ideas in there. Sure. So, and that's something that you can't always say about a low budget, low budget uh, B grade product made yeah. to be thrown up on a drive-in screen, you know. And just to make some money. I mean, I mean, I remember episode watching the probe and being uh, uh, disappointed, uh, counterweight, and and but I'll I'll tell you this. I think that there's a lot of those episodes that aren't that good of Outer Limits that move faster and in a more cohesive way than a lot of bad science fiction movies that you would have been seeing at the theater at the time. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I agree. So, Well, Mark, I want to thank you for sitting and talking a little bit about The Outer Limits, man. Cool. I appreciate it. I mean, I th- this is one time that Rodney and I definitely agree. We even agree on most of the episodes, whether yeah, which is kind of odd. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of odd. I, I don't know if that really is that odd. I think I think Outer Limits is a, is it's like it's like a guy lays some bricks down and he trials in some some cement and there's this foundation there of stuff that you and I have always believed in, and then we fight yeah. about everything else because. Because, we, fight, we fight about the details, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's like if you and I got into a big fight, you know, pulled out our claws and started scratching at each other over Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it ain't going to happen no. because it's a foundation piece or H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. We're not going to fight over it because um, it's a foundation piece that everything, you know, a lot of things come from after. And Outer Limits, I think, has got that. I think it's got... Uh, you know, maybe uh, you know, forty to fifty percent of their episodes are super classics. Another chunk of them are pretty damn good entertainment. And there's a few in there that you kind of go, "Eh, that wasn't a good one that yeah, way." There's but, some duds, but hey, but mathematically, it, it it comes across as a huge winner. So it's a great show, and I'm right. glad, and I'm glad. Like I say, I I can't wait for them to. Uh, to render this in high definition. Who knows how long that's going to be? I know. I can't believe it hasn't been done already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be a little work. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. I appreciate it, buddy. (laughs) 
See, I told you we spent a, a fair amount of time complaining about the fact that there were no Blu-rays of The Outer Limits available. Uh, but luckily, of course, you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, uh, they're coming out. They're going to be putting The Outer Limits out on Blu-ray. And that is a great and wonderful thing that we should all be happy about. Now, I don't know how many of you out there are familiar with all 49 episodes of The Outer Limits. If you are not, hey... You should, uh, you should rectify that. You should go out there and attempt to see The Outer Limits. It's good television. It's great stuff. It's fantastic science fiction. And in, in a lot of the episodes, even got a monster in it, buddy. That's right. So go do it. Go watch some Outer Limits episodes. You don't have to wait for the Blu-rays. But, hey, I understand how things go. And if you're familiar with The Outer Limits, hey, what are your favorite episodes? What are the episodes that you think are the most effective? What are the ones that you think suck? Because, hey, you know, not all of them are great. Some of them kind of stink. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Counterweight and The Probe and a few others that just, you know, really kind of fall down. But here's the thing, and I don't know if we stressed this enough when we were recording this show. Even the ones that aren't particularly good do have elements within them that are worth seeing the show for. There's some really great stuff there, even in the episodes that just aren't up to uh, the usual high standards that The Outer Limits managed to create. So, thank you very much for listening to this episode, and uh, hey, tune back in soon. Mark and I do intend to record another episode here in a month or so, and uh, if we can stay on track, we're going to try to concentrate on the third season of the uh, original Star Trek series. Mainly because it's the uh, the weakest season of the show, as all fans know. But there are some gems in there. We won't spend all of our time complaining about space hippies and brainless Spocks. Trust me, there will be conversation about things other than that uh, if we can stay on track. So, fingers crossed we talk about uh, Star Trek, the original series, third season. Uh, but Lord knows Mark and I get distracted so damned easily. So thank you once again for listening to the show. This is Rod and I will talk to you again soon.
It's a hell of an episode. Hey, you're the one who can't remember the title. Shut your hole. <laughs>